And hello, everybody. Tis time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today on our show... We're not doing cubicles. No way. No, 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 no. Don't think of it as a cubicle. Just think of it as a, a, a neutral colored enclosure about yay high around your workspace. Yeah, nice try. But we know what you're talking about. He's talking about cubicles. And a cube, by any other name, is just as confining, stultifying, and soul-sucking. Tens of millions of Americans have spent a fair share of their time on this earth toiling in these enclosures about yay high. And for many of us, the mere thought of being so entombed brings a clammy feeling of dread. Which is not to say that what came before the cubicle was really so great. In fact, those boxy containers grew out of an effort, ironically, to fix some of the problems that plagued earlier generations of offices, if you can believe it. I believe it because I read a new book that is making the rounds and getting a lot of nice notices. It's called Cubed, A Secret History of the Workplace. It describes the evolution of office space from the cramped chambers of Victorian-era clerks to the vast desk hangers of early 20th century corporate America to the ever-spreading cubicle farms of our own time and beyond. It is not just a story of the spaces, but also the social forces that shaped them and the lives that have been shaped by them or misshapen by them. Its author is Nikhil Saval, who just happens to be my guest today on the show. Do stay tuned. Nikhil, you must have visited and looked at a lot of offices when you were researching this book. Yeah, I have a shocking number of, of offices. I still enjoy it in an odd way. Well, what was the most dispiriting, mind-numbing, godforsaken office you saw? I visited some campuses in, in South Asia, and what you find is a reproduction in some ways of a lot of the campus corporate atmosphere of, of the U.S. Uh, I visited one uh, outside Bangalore, India, where it was landscaped beautifully. It had some, it seemed like rare species of butterfly. I think they had their own sort of power grid and infrastructure separate from the city. But then the offices in the interior were, were just filled with cubicles. And I think it was just because they thought this is what offices were supposed to look like. You know, um, I ask a kind of downer question because there is shadowing this whole study, this whole field uh, that you looked into, you know, something of an air of gloom and alienation. Uh, in fact, you even begin your book with an epigraph from a poem by Theodore Rethke, Dolar. <laughs> you only include one line. But I, I looked it up, and I've got the whole poem in front of me. Do you know it? Uh, not by <laughs> heart. Well, I tried. I tried, but yeah, I, I, I've forgotten some of it. But of course, well, yeah, I know the poem. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, because I think it's worth reading at the beginning of our conversation about offices. It was published in 1948, I guess. I have known the inexorable sadness of pencils, neat in their boxes, doler of pad and paperweight, all the misery of manila folders and mucilage, desolation in immaculate public places, lonely reception room, lavatory, switchboard, the unalterable pathos of basin and pitcher, ritual of multigraph, paperclip, comma, endless duplication of lives and objects. And I have seen dust from the walls of institutions finer than flour, alive, more dangerous than silica, sift, almost invisible, through long afternoons of tedium, 
dropping in a fine film on nails and delicate eyebrows, glazing the pale hair, the duplicate gray standard faces. <laughs> did I say that lugubriously enough? <laughs> I think you got the tone. I think you did. This is what, um, you know, the idea of the office, you know, has conjured up for generations of people, um, an image of incredible drudgery and life, you know, sort of slipping away minute by minute. Yeah. The contradiction of office life, one of the many, is that it's supposed to be clean work. It's an escape from factory labor. It's supposedly mental labor. Then there's the term knowledge work. There's just so many oddly utopian ideas that have floated around or buzzed around uh, office work like a cloud of flies. And there was always a feeling that it, one day it could be better, that office work could be better. At the same time that the tradition of writing about the office as a place of drudgery is as old as the office itself. I mean, Bartleby the Scrivener, has, <laughs> you know, from the 1850s has this unusual capacity yep. to make office life that is totally different uh, feel exactly the same <laughs> as it is for generations. Yeah, office uh, literature begins with depression and continues, you know, to alternate between depression and rebellion, people breaking out, freeing themselves. Bartleby was called by Herman Melville from 1853, A Story of Wall Street. And uh, remind us who Bartleby the Scrivener was. So Bartleby the Scrivener was hired, uh, at least in, in the story by Melville, he's a character hired by an unnamed narrator in a law office, basically to, to copy documents. And Bartleby comes in, and I think the description, I may not getting, be getting the phrase exactly right, but is that He's incurably forlorn, pallidly, pitiably respectable looking. Pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably okay. forlorn. Hey, you just you about go. nailed it. <laughs> well, I've spent a lot of, a lot of time uh, with the, I've known the uh, sadness of pencils. But um, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, and so, so Bartleby gets hired, and, and there's something about him that is weirdly harmless and also weirdly ominous. He just, he, he doesn't eat. His, the window out of his view faces a brick wall. Even though he doesn't eat, he, he gorges on documents. He just loves copying. But then when it comes to a particular task he's confronted with, he suddenly confronts his boss by saying, I would, famously, I would prefer not to. And this throws the whole office into disarray. But I mean, the, the thing that makes it interesting is that in the 1850s, when the story came out, it somehow encapsulated a broader feeling in the United States and elsewhere about clerical labor. There was something odd about it. There was something uncomfortable about it. The fact that it was just reproducing documents, that it was so alienated from any kind of actual producing of things. It was very new, and people were very afraid of it. And so Bartleby, in a way, is this figure of fear. He kind of allegorizes this fear of this particular kind of work. Of kind of zombification, almost. Yeah. Your book describes how the clerk was sort of a new figure on, on the landscape, and people, you know, greeted them with a lot, a lot of contempt and hostility and suspicion. I was really surprised to read some of these descriptions. There's one from Vanity Fair magazine. I don't know what year, but 1800s. Yeah, antebellum. Uh, antebellum, okay, before yeah. the Civil War. Uh, describing clerks as vain, mean, selfish, greedy, sensual, and sly, talkative, and cowardly. We have Dickens with characters like Uriah Heep. And even Walt Whitman, you know, a guy who contained 
supposed multitudes had no room for clerks inside of him. <laughs> he described them as wretched, spindling, forked radishes. And how ridiculously would their natty demeanor appear if they suddenly could all be stripped naked? He may have had ulterior motives for that thought, but um, <laughs> but but, but uh, why? I mean, why would you know guys just trying to make a living, albeit inside of offices and working with paper and pencils? Why would they encounter so much hostility? Well, the reasons were multifarious. Maybe the central one was that it was not a real conception of how work was done in the U.S. or or England, for that matter, in mid-century. I think people assumed that if you could work, you would do some kind of manual labor, either in you know early industrial labor or or farming. The other thing that was weird about it was that most other kinds of work left imprints, physical imprints on your body. But from clerical labor, you didn't gain anything. They they often refer to the slim bodies of clerics. There's an Im- imputation of femininity to it. They're narrow-chested. Um, that was just upsetting to people. I mean, the odd thing is that a lot of this comes from journalists who you know, were not doing comparably different kinds of work. So, I mean, there might have been a little bit of projection. Right. There. Well, I mean, this um, disdain was not necessarily focused on the bosses who were also doing you know, jobs that primarily had to do with information uh, and may have been desk jobs. It was really reserved for the, the lackeys under them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really for young men. Uh-huh. Why, why as a young man, would you seek to sequester yourself in this setup? I mean, yeah. Emerson talks about how silly it is that everyone seems to want to get a place in an office, in a, a high chair in an office. I mean, <laughs> it's, and it, it's a very dependent kind of work. It's not independent. You're not making your way in the world of business. I think partners or merchants themselves seem that way. Self-determination, yeah. Yeah. So there's this cult of self-reliance coming from guys like Emerson, who had a, you know, almost theological kind of reverence for this idea of making one's own way, inventing oneself. And these clerks, you know, didn't fit that picture. In fact, if you look at the history of office work that you describe in your book, I mean, part of the the loathing and fear that it seems to arouse in people has to do with the way it clashes with the American idea of um, rugged individuality. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you you find this even up to a sort of more left-wing critic of these ideals, like, like Seabright Mills in White Collar, which has a kind of elegy for the old frontier spirit. Right. Which overlaps a little bit with more conservative critics like Joseph Schumpeter, who, who finds the office squelching entrepreneurialism. It's odd. At the same time, though, the office, too, had a certain kind of individualism built into it. They were places of meritocracy that you, you entered a, as a junior clerk, and it was plausible that you could rise up in, within the firm. You might even marry your boss's daughter. There was a kind of familial <laughs> aspect to it and, and a sense of apprenticeship. So it was an individualism of a certain kind, but there was this fear that the more and more people who were doing this dependent, subservient kind of work, the more the old middle class of independent businessmen was being threatened. Mm. Now, the word clerk is related to, of course, clerical and clergy, right? Yes, yeah, that's true, yeah. So what is the connection there? I'm thinking of monks, you know, copying uh, manuscripts. Does the connection have to do with that kind of labor, or is there some other connection? You know, that's a good question. The answer is, is 
buried somewhere in the misty recesses of my early research. But in a way, monastic labor is the kind of prototype of, of office labor, as it is the prototype of bureaucracy uh, in general. So I suspect there is some connection, but actually I, the, the very direct etymology is, escapes me. So you're not going to just make something up for me, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to make things up, but in this case, I, I stay off the record. Well, yeah. well, describe the spaces in which these early clerks, we're talking 19th century, these early office workers did their jobs. For the most part, especially when I'm really thinking of, of sort of merchants, clerks, counting houses, uh, or that's how they were referred to, they were small. I mean, there were one to two room affairs. There was usually a partner or two and then one or two clerks, maybe a bookkeeper. So you, you would at most have permanently ensconced there five people, although you would then often have people running in and out of, during the day from other offices, maybe from like the shipping areas. There was a lot of traffic through this very small space. And they might be grimy from a pot-bellied stove in the center of the room to keep things warm. They were dank, and, you know, the, and, and the descriptions of Bartleby of his law office or of Scrooge and, and Cratchit, they refer to um, Scrooge's assistant as being in a kind of tank. You know, like there's not... <laughs> a cubbyhole, um, kind of tiny yeah. little alcove. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not maybe too different from some small offices today, but very different from the large corporate offices we, we associate with the term office. You describe one so-called office from that period as measuring 25 square feet, which is five by five, if it were square, you know, not much larger than a bathroom stall, that contained 10 people, yeah. partners and clerks. I mean, I'm trying to picture that. I can't. I really can't. <laughs> now that you mention it, <laughs> the one thing that actually is worth keeping in mind is that although there would be days when clerks were just writing all day, you know, and filing receipts or what, what have you, there are many days when they were just out and about. I mean, there was there, these, these offices were usually attached to dry goods emporia, like maybe to fabrics or things like that. And so clerks would often be working the store as well as working in the office. Uh, okay, so I imagine only a couple people in there at one time is probably what was happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And clerks have to run to the bank. They have to run to check on various accounts. They did this all personally. They didn't have phones. They didn't have telegraph. All business was very face-to-face mm -hmm. at that point. So they weren't always there. And then we have a really dramatic change the growth of big enterprises, the kind of economies of scale that uh, kick in when you get railroads and telegraphs and then telephones, the amount of information that has to be processed grows exponentially, and you need people to process it. So suddenly you get really big offices after this prehistoric age of tiny little, um, as they say, alcoves and cubby holes and closet-sized offices. And you, uh, you signal this change really almost cinematically uh, at the beginning of your second chapter. Uh, I don't know if you were thinking of the movies, but I could just see this brought to film with a nice dissolve between these two scenes. Oh, well, that would be cool. <laughs> we, should, we should sell that. We should work on it. <laughs> um, I'm going to read from the opening of that chapter. This is sort of a before and after picture, the old world and the new. Imagine a bookkeeper pausing to look down at his ledger in 1860, only to look back up in 1920. He might be surprised to see that his familiar small surroundings had melted away entirely, converted into a space whose high ceilings and tall columns resembled nothing so much as a cave swollen with stalactites. 
His lone colleague and brother-in-arms, the clerk, was gone, replaced by dozens of unfamiliar faces surrounding him in neat, serried rows of desks. The cigar-chomping partner at the nearby roll-top desk would be gone, too, having multiplied into a small squadron of bosses locked away in snug executive suites high up in the stratosphere. His work now is harried, insistent, relentless. Farewell the tranquil, languorous days of the counting house. Greetings to the factory-like labor of the office. The texture of time has grown rougher, tighter, a moment as difficult to pinpoint as it is decisive. Men with stopwatches record the motions of his pencil, his filing habits, when and whether he goes to the bathroom, how long he lingers at the water cooler, how many minutes he wastes. The viscous silence of the old office is sliced through with the high-pitched metal clack of the typewriter, the adding machine, the sliding and slamming of file cabinets. He clocks in and out, shrill bells ring in his workday, and push him out, squinting into the early evening darkness, shoved and jostled by the black-coated thousands following him out of his office in an endless, dark stream. Nikhil, you went to town on that passage. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had fun. <laughs> uh, well, you, a, lot of your, um, a lot of your research for this, at least from what I'm gathering, having read the book, is from fiction. That's sort of one of your favorite things, right? Literature? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I like it. I like literature. So yeah. it obviously uh, soaked into your style there. Yeah, I meant it to be a serious sort of social history, but I have a literature background. It's, of course, dangerous to cite novels as, as, as primary sources of any kind. Yeah, I was wondering about that. How reliable are they? I mean, you, you have to be careful, but when it comes to descriptions of office life, I mean, as fanciful as they sometimes are, they usually come from certain kinds of personal experience. I mean, there are novels about factory life, a lot, of, a lot of socialist novels of that kind, where the writers don't necessarily know firsthand the experience they're describing, whereas office life has a unique congruence with a lot of the experience of the writers themselves. Whether it's Bartleby, where you know, Melville was a clerk, you know, to the man in the gray flannel suit, where Sloan Wilson, I think, was really refracting a certain kind of organization man ethos at the time that many people recognized as their, from their own experience. Office fiction might be unique in that way when it comes to descriptions of work, where they're really talking about their own work. I wonder if it might skew our view a little bit, because there is nobody who imagines him or herself to be more different from uh, a clerk or an office slave than a novelist. I mean, the, the novelist is the, the epitome of the uh, maybe self-important uh, individualist, right, who would tend to look down on all of these desk jockeys, these pencil pushers, even though the the writer's also pushing a pencil and sitting at a desk. I think that's true. There is a sort of bias because there's, it's like, well, this, my work, my labor is creative. Yes. You know, and yours is ultimately just, you're just a tool. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, and that's true to the, to the more literary depiction of the sort of higher echelons of writing about the office. But in sort of, in a lot of the more popular fiction, like there's a novelist, Faith Baldwin, who is a kind of forgotten writer of bestsellers about office life, you find a lot more attention to maybe just the small pleasures of oh, office really? life. Oh, huh. really? Yeah, the familiarity, the gossip. The, right. I mean, there's a, the, things get melodramatic when she writes about sexual politics in the office, but um, and that height, the, the heightened fears over women entering the office and things like that. But yeah, fiction is not totally reliable, but you can treat it as a kind of an attempt at a faithful depiction of, of that kind of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, The Office has been kind of a staple of entertainment, of drama, 
in you know written and cinematic form for over a century now, going back at least as we say to to Dickens and Melville. One thing, though, in thinking about all the the movies that I've watched and all the books I've read about the subject, the one thing that they don't really spend much time on, especially the movies, is the actual work. That's definitely true, yes. Work is really hard for film and, and, and literature, really, to depict. It's usually some abstraction, whether it's copying documents in Bartleby or, you know, in, in the one of the early office films, King Vidor's The Crowd, a very expressionistic depiction of office life is just being zombified, basically. Yeah. It's accounting, you know, you see, like, the protagonist adding up numbers, but that's not very specific. And this is true of The Apartments as well, the uh, the great Billy Wilder film. Where you, the With Jack Lemmon. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. C.C. Baxter effectively works with an adding machine. And in a way, that's actually true of literature in general. It's very hard for, for writers to depict work, and the exceptions tend to be pretty major exceptions, like Moby Dick actually is a very good description of whaling, and The Jungle, a very good description of meatpacking. And that is, the, is part of the larger problem with the office as a subject in history, is that you're not really supposed to think too closely about it or, or look too closely at it. I think that's why there isn't a lot of historical writing about it. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of the opposite of what people in the entertainment industry want to depict partly because their audience is fleeing work. They're escaping from it by watching the movie or reading the book. So who wants to read the detailed description of the actual work in their yeah. off hours? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and it creates some weird problems. I mean, I don't know if I'm a real fan of the, uh, the original British version of, of The Office, the show. With Ricky Gervais, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's terrific. I mean, I, it, it sort of ruined the American history, but... Um, but one of the things that you can't understand about it is that why this Ricky Gervais, the central character, is this classically bad boss. But it's never clear how he managed to actually become a boss. <laughs> he seems so bad at his job. It actually creates problems just for, for plausibility of, of, the, of the plot and anything to understand how, how things get done. I mean, one of the ways that films deal with this, I think, is to make the actual work a kind of joke. I think The Apartment is really good at this, where... You know, the central character, Baxter, is, works pretty hard. He works as hard as, as anyone else. But the key to his success is that he has this apartment that he keeps uh, off the job and he, that his bosses use to, to carry on affairs with, sometimes with the switchboard operators in the office or secretaries or what have you. And that's how he rises up through the firm. He gets promotions constantly. And so it's this joke sort of about upward mobility in the office. It's that being good at your job is not actually what's going to get you up to the top. It's politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that movie, um, Jack Lemmon is acting as kind of a pimp to higher-level executives. Uh, he's yeah. letting them use his apartment, right, for trysts. I mean, he's not setting them up with the women, but, you know, he's pretty compromised. And there's a sense that it's not just women who are being sexually reduced by the dynamics of that situation. It's also men like Jack Lemmon, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's portrayed as a certain kind of sexual eunuch, and then, yeah, and then when, yeah. he, when he when he does try to to ask out the elevator inspector, um, played by Shirley MacLaine, in the office, he in fact try, eventually tries to parlay his new executive privilege that he gets from from this apartment from arranging trysts, which is like a an even bigger joke because it didn't come from his his actual abilities. Right, his job right. just came from. And then it turns out that she's sleeping with his boss, and it's, you know, anyway, it's a genius. It's a pretty brilliant 
brilliant. Uh, you know, a movie I, I don't think you mentioned in the book is uh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. But it, uh, of course, is about, you know, mechanization of work life. You know, it has this, these great scenes in which Charlie Chaplin, the factory worker, is made to work faster and faster on an assembly line until he goes berserk. But during uh, the lunch break, some newfangled equipment salesman brings in a, a feeding machine that they strap him into. Uh, right, and that right. attempts to you know feed him automatically while he continues to work on the assembly line, I think. That just reminded me again of this transition that you described in the passage I read a few minutes ago, where um, you know between 1860 and 1920, office life had become super routinized, mechanized, systematized, and the rather large shadow of uh, Frederick Speedy Taylor pretty much hovered over American work life in a huge way. T tell us about this guy, kind of the high priest of efficiency. Uh, yeah, Taylor, uh, I think he's just one of the, the sort of biggest figures in 20th century American life. He was raised in a sort of wealthy Philadelphia family. He was supposed to go to Harvard, but he, he effectively failed in his exams and, and ended up taking up a job in a factory as an apprentice. And Taylor was, had this maniacal obsession with efficiency, and it was really born out of this experience on the factory floor. I think what he confronted there was, and people maybe forget this, that American factory life in the late 19th century was not quite as rationalized as it came to be. And there were gangs of workers who had some measure of control over what the work process was like. And they would, you know, they would slow down as necessary. And Taylor hated this because he just thought this could be done so much better, so much quicker. No one really studied the process. The tools were not standardized. The motions that people used, how much energy they expended in any given task, that was not really standardized. And he kept berating his fellow workers to do this, to get it together. And so he was not uh, exceptionally popular in, in, in these workplaces. <laughs> But so he, he started to, you know, take his talents elsewhere, and he began to systematize his studies. I mean, he, he was, his goal, effectively, was to separate knowledge of the work process from its execution. He wanted workers not to know, in a way, how their work was done. He wanted another group of people to study it and then make proposals on how that work should be done and, and control the work. It was both about knowledge but also about managerial control. So he became this uh, this guru of time and motion studies, right? Breaking yeah. every single task down into its component parts, timing them, photographing them, and seeing how they could be done faster and more efficiently. That's right. And he pitched this in a sort of individualist way. He, he thought the idea was that you could be paid a piece rate. You would be paid for completing a certain minimum of, of the, the larger task you would strive to do better because you would be paid more if you did the task in less time. So, so are you uh, saying, like, if I were stuffing envelopes, he would pay me for doing a good job of licking the envelope, but maybe not pay me as much if I was bad at addressing the envelope? That's right. Yeah, it was... My God. Then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He thought this was a kind of liberation of office workers because each individual could, could, do, could do better and get paid uh, more. But, and but, the other... Breaking yeah, I mean, them into machines, atomizing everything. That's right. It was this sort of patently disingenuous pitch. One of the other things that Taylor hated was, was labor unions. I'm sure. Part of the thing that he hated about labor unions is that they were protective 
of workers, they standardized their pay, and they made work a collective issue as opposed to an individual issue. And he wanted the workers to feel themselves as individuals at the same time that he wanted the system to be paramount. Well, well, Taylorism, as it came to be called, you know, had a huge impact on, as I say, work life. You have a wonderful um, anecdote about a diary by a guy named William Poifair Jr. He was an auto worker. He kept a journal. And uh, did you discover this, or was this in some other book that you read? Someone else had already found oh, it. Oh, no. So this was described in a very great book called The Fall of the House of Labor by David Montgomery. So uh-huh. I, I, I did not, I did not discover this piece <laughs> of uh, piece of Taylorism. So. Still, it, it's pure gold. Tell me the entirety of the uh, diary entry from William Poifair Jr. for May 28, 1915. So I actually don't have this at hand. Well, I can do it for you then. Yeah, if, he, you, if you don't mind. Was, yeah, his was, only entry for that day was stopwatched. That's right. <laughs> Meaning and, that one of these Taylorites had come around to time him at his job. And from that moment on, everything was different. That's right. It felt as this real intrusion into the workplace. There are often these people who come in who are not workers, and they just have a stopwatch and they have a clipboard, and they're marking how fast it takes you to complete each motion of, of your work, and then comparing that to what should be the ideal. And this is the most hated aspect of Taylorism. I mean, it, it leads to strikes uh, in various, like very famous strikes, where Congress even held... Um, hearings about the Taylor system. It's a, it's a huge intrusion, but the, I mean, the main result of it is sort of an ideology of management. Taylorism really leads to this stratum of people, whether they're stop-watching people or they're just in another office planning out the process, who are separated from the work itself, and they have control over how, how it's done. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the ideal, anyway. And, and as I said, he, he did it in offices, not just factories uh, or they did it in offices. How did it affect the design of offices, which is the big theme of your book? Did their studies of efficiency um, result in, theoretically at least, more productive office arrangements? They certainly resulted in more factory-like office arrangements, because the, the idea was that work, office work should be as efficient and streamlined as factory work. And it extended down to, as we discussed earlier, envelope licking, uh, <laughs> filing, and the other thing that changed about it was the sense of surveillance in the office. You know, in earlier offices, the kind of paradigmatic desk was the Wooten desk, which was this huge desk that had lots of cubby holes and, like, uh, and wings that extended around you like arms um, and that enclosed you in this space. And it was your own space. You could hide things. But then the desk that was characteristic of the, of the Taylorist era of the office was the efficiency desk, which was metal. It was flat, and the idea was that it could be watched. Basically, it could be standardized. Everyone got the same desk. I mean, every you know, low-level worker got the same desk, and everyone could be watched. So you have um, a sea of desks in a big cavernous room, a bunch of workers hunched over them, and then a few bosses like proctors sort of strolling and uh, eyeballing them perpetually. In a way, like foremen in a, yeah. on a factory floor. And then Sometimes in certain offices they had mezzanines where, where bosses could kind of look over the office paperwork factory, and you even see this in most fictional depictions of the office through the 60s and 70s. The apartment we mentioned, but how to succeed in business, um, that really trying, or, or that film 9 to 5, which is from 1980, 
it's just that's how those offices look. The central part of the office is very factory-like. In describing the layout of the office that you just did, where it's designed for surveillance, you know, this panoptic effect, is there any parallel to be made with uh, prison design? <laughs> like in discipline and punish? I guess, or, or, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Um, you know, there must be in the sense that you, you did want to be able to watch people from a central location or from many, you know, many different locations. And even if you couldn't watch all the office work from a central spot, the idea was that you maybe didn't even have to because the workers felt that they were being watched. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if there is some connection to, to prisons. But they, they did get out of jail at the end of each day, those who didn't yes. stay all night. But you talked about uh, unionization earlier. Of course, it was becoming widespread in the period we're talking about, you know, the early to mid-20th century, in blue-collar trades, but not so much in white-collar work. That's right. The thing about office work is that there is the sense that meritocracy was part of it and so that you didn't need collective action, but also that unions' organizing model didn't seem to accommodate the changes in office work. It was very much focused on industrial labor. And it was only when things got challenged, when office workers began to see, see spells of unemployment or they began to recognize that they were in some kind of collective process that they thought or were subject to organizing. And so, like, there are spells of this. Right after the First World War, office workers lose ground vis-a-vis blue-collar workers, and there's a kind of upsurge in organizing. But then throughout the 1920s, when it seems like some people are getting rich, uh, you know, growing 20s, office workers then began to feel a little bit more like they can rely on themselves, and then also unions lose the initiative. So it's not just that I think there's something inherent to office work that is anti-union, but that there's a, there's a mismatch between what labor unions were, were doing and what office workers wanted, in a way. Hmm. Um, so the idea that in an office, at least theoretically, you have a lot of upward mobility. You can, in some cases, start in the mailroom and end up in the executive suite. Yes. <laughs> that makes it harder to to organize people, uh, you know, as a union for strikes and things like that uh, when they think they really can make it on their own. I think that's the biggest reason. Yeah, and then I quote a writer from the 1950s, or actually a union organizer, writing in Harper's about the fact that unions have really not succeeded in organizing white collar workers. And one of the, the reasons he cites is that white collar workers think of themselves as having certain skills in, in certain professions that they belong to, whereas he, when he organizes factory workers, they talk about the industry they work in. But when he talks, about, talks to white-collar workers, they refer to themselves as stenographers or you know, accountants, or in a way, they possess skills that they can take elsewhere. So there was upward mobility, and there's also the, the sense that a white-collar worker could take him or herself you know, across the street you know, to another office and move on, whereas in factory life you were kind of locked in. The idea in those days was this was a cradle-to-grave sort of job. Um, I haven't asked you this yet, but why did you get interested in this subject? How did you get interested in this subject? Uh, the reason I got interested was really that I had a job in an office, and it, might, it was my first job out of college. I was working in sort of corporate publishing, and I was fascinated to, to say the least, in a, in a very unhealthy way with, uh, with how the office was laid out, the politics of the office. It was all that, and, and combined with a 
fascination with some of the cultural stuff. I was watching the show The Office. There were novels coming out around the time, Senate offices, and it made me start to wonder why these were the way they were. And one of the questions, in fact, that, that had dogged me was why there was no sort of organization in offices. I, I think, when, in fact, when I moved offices to a slightly smaller publishing house, I had more control over it, but it was a much more precarious situation. What were you doing exactly? I was an editorial assistant okay. in publishing in both, in both cases. And I had more to do, but my hours were worse. In my original office, I was pretty much 9 to 5. Now I was like 9 to 7, sometimes 8. I would have to come in on weekends occasionally. I didn't have power in, in the workplace, and nor, nor did anyone else. And, you know, someone would get laid off every now and then, and I, I wouldn't understand. And this is when I, I actually... The first idea of just unionizing the office even came to me, but I had no understanding of what that would look like in an office, and I didn't really get very far. And that was also part of it, is that I suddenly thought there was a kind of labor history of the office to tell, but I didn't know how to tell it. And there was nowhere to go, in a way. There was just no book to read. There, was no, there were no books about office life that I found very historical. The best was by C. Wright Mills and White Collar, which is a classic, but it was from 1950. One and this was mm. early 2000s. And so I wanted to know what had happened. And this is when I stumbled on the history of the office cubicle. And suddenly I think I, I thought I had found a way into the subject because cubicles had become the kind of most common way to refer to a bad white-collar existence. I'm a faceless drone in a cubicle. And I, and I realized that this was actually a, a code, a kind of way of talking about what had happened to work over the 20th century. And that was, that was the seed, I think, for, for the book. Uh, well, I want to get to the cubicle part, because that's really the climax of your story. And as you're saying, it's the inspiration for your story as well, the entry point in your own life. But I still want to stick to some of the history. So we, we left off at you know the, the early modern period, where you have the skyscrapers going up, you have the big open offices with the uh, you know rows of desks, and maybe the executive offices on tiers or floors above. You have the whole hierarchy, in fact, um, spread out uh, in physical form from one floor to the next. What is the next stage of, of office evolution? Well, you have a certain peak, I think, of that early factory-like office. It gets streamlined, and it becomes, in a way, I mean, you might even call it rather beautiful. And this is this is the the onset of modernism, I think, in architecture, the consolidation and predification of the office with things like the international-style skyscrapers on Park Avenue, like the Lever House and the Seagram Building. You have the development of corporate campuses like Bell Labs or Connecticut General. I mean, in a way, the office becomes the symbol of post-war prosperity in the U.S. And there's lots of things that, that lead to this one. It's just sheer technology that air conditioning gets invented, um, fluorescent lighting, things that make offices cheaper and easier to make bigger. And you can have these wide floor plates that are just powerfully air conditioned. And the invention of the curtain wall, the glass skin that you see on things like the UN building or, or you know, any modernist skyscraper means that these, these places get a little bit more light than they used to, but then they also have to be air conditioned as a result. There's those technological changes, but also just the U.S. becomes this kind of corporate powerhouse. It becomes the largest economy in the world. Corporate corporations start to lavish 
certain kind of perks on their employees, and they become at once more powerful and, and more familial. They start to invade other aspects of people's lives. Well, the, the trade-off is, I guess, for the people who worked in them in that period, they really were a ticket to a good life, you know, to some extent, security, lifetime security for you and your kids. The suburban home, the generous pension, retirement plan, a lot of amenities, as you say, in the office, right, in and around the campus, if you're out in one of those countryside campuses. And uh, on the other hand, you sort of pledge allegiance to the firm, right? So you have to be really loyal, not just on the job, but 24-7, right? Yeah, there's um, the the kind of extension of corporate control over your life becomes enormous. It, the the thing is that it gets pitched in in a very warm, like we're we're out to help you kind of way. We'll pay you well. We'll give you a job for life. You know, if you make it to being a middle manager, and you'll you know we it sort of re- requires certain things from you. And the way the the level of enforcement of conformity is real. One of the things that corporations start to do is indulge a mania for personality testing. Many, many corporations start to test their employees before they enter the firm to make sure that they're a fit. The, you know, a lot of these employees had, had exited World War II and had unacknowledged traumas, and in a way they were, they were, the, the corporations were trying to make sure that they were healthy so to speak, mm. enough mm. to get into the firm. Mm. Um, you know, it even extends through to their families. You have a large number of corporations that start interviewing the wives of potential middle managers because there's so many events that you, you have to be part of. You have to go to dinners, you have to entertain, you go to company picnics. And so your family has to fit the corporate family. Oh. I mean, in 1951, Fortune estimated that about 20% of corporations that interviewed corporate wives actually turned down the managers because of their wives. Unfit <laughs> wives. Unfit wives. Wow. Well, yeah, and there's, there's a, as you say, you, you know, the, the corporation has become so encompassing that they're kind of replicating all the features of a community internally, right? So you have the picnics, you have the events, you have medical plans, and you might even have all kinds of retail establishments, you know, in the office building or on the campus, so you don't have to go anywhere else. You even have, like, you know, I don't know if you ever heard uh, Terry Gross interviewing the guys who produced industrial musicals for corporate events. Oh, yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just music, actual theatricals, major, you know, uh uh, corporate-themed musicals with actors and, and original songs, original music, all about the corporation and what it does. You know, again, sort of replicating in miniature a, a completely company-based universe that people would inhabit. It's both scary, I mean, and comforting in a way. I think we as a society get used to putting that stuff down, but as you pointed out, some of these guys had come from hell, right? From World War II and Korea. And, and for them to just want security, who could blame them, you know? Right. They were people who sought safety. There was genuine fear that it developed over a generation of depression and then Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention the Depression. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How could I miss that one? Yeah. So you had decades of incredibly harrowing events. Um, so, yeah, why not jump into the embrace of a parental organization that was going to take care of you, for sure? So, yeah. so you had the, the, the high modernist style, as you say, the international style, the high-rise glass-enclosed tower, and the kinds of offices that uh, were contained in those. 
Um, let's jump to the real finale, what you call the great cubing of America. Um, this is something that really goes back to the early 60s and the Herman Miller Corporation, uh, very famous for its office furniture. Tell us about the origin of the cubicle and what the intent was initially. The cubicle is, is one of the great ironies, I guess, of office life. The creator of the cubicle was, and I, he never intended to be known as the creator of the cubicle, but, <laughs> and nor did, nor did Herman Miller, I think, and, and it's sort of tragic for, for both in a way that this, is, this has become what they're Tragic? For. How many billions have they made off cubicle <laughs> That's true. Supplies. So for Herman Miller, they made out big. But um, and so did many, many furniture companies, <laughs> not just Herman Miller. But certainly tragic for, for Probst. Oh, this is Robert Probst. Robert Probst. Uh, so Robert Probst was, uh, he was an, an autodidact. He was just mainly an inventor. And he got hired by the Herman Miller Company in the late 50s just to sort of be a, an intellectual as, of sorts in the furniture world, but he got obsessed with the office. And I think it was because he was experimenting with his own workspace and he started to find new modes of, of working. And he wasn't satisfied with a single desk. He wanted a standing desk uh, at the time. He wanted to be able to move from various, in various positions. I think he wanted to be in motion in a way. He also confronted a workplace which was not very conducive to actual work. He called it a wasteland. You know, just the rows of desks or the corridor offices. A lot of it was arranged due to status, prestige. You would get an office just because you had risen to a certain rank. Your furniture would be nicer. But it didn't correspond to what you actually had to do in a given day. It wasn't fair in a way that people in the center had these shitty, excuse me, had these terrible arrangements and that people on the outside got these offices. And so for, for Probst, he, he was just trying to figure out a way to find an office arrangement that suited the way people actually behaved. And so he got together with this designer, uh, George Nelson. They concocted this thing called Action Office. This is in uh, 1962 or four. Okay. 1964. The Action and Office. It was meant to be this, this very loose configuration of three sort of stations including a, a standing desk where you would, you, whatever kind of work you had to do, you had a space for it and you could arrange it. It was loose. It was open. Modular. You had to have a modular. That's exactly the, the phrase. But it was very rapturously received by critics, but it was too expensive. Managers weren't going to spend that kind of money on, this, on fancy desks for their junior staff. And so Probst went back to the drawing board, and it was the 1960s, and in a way it started to infect his ideas. He wanted to make a, an individualist space, a space that was for autonomy, for independence of the, of the worker. And so finally, in 1968, he debuted what was called Action Office 2, not especially creative name, but it was this three-walled interlocking setup. It was meant to be flexible. It was obtusely angled, you know, often at 120 degrees. And he thought of it as this system for the whole workplace. I mean, they even hand out kits. They used to hand out kits that you could plan out little action office modules, it was, for him, you know, a way of giving workers individuality, their own space, but also of making the whole office flexible and flowing and kind of, and about communication and not about status or prestige. And at this point, Nikhil, um, I mean, I've seen some of the, the pictures that you include in your book and also looked a few up online. Um, it wasn't yet identical boxes one after the other, was it? I mean, these action office 
components, these modules, could be configured in all kinds of ways, and you could have all kinds of odd angles. Um, so that the office floor was actually not so repetitive, right? No. In fact, it was neither meant to be repetitive nor fixed. It, it was the, the organic. Was, yeah, it was, it was organic to what work had to be done at the time. And mm-hmm. he saw the office as being in continual change. And it was received really well. I mean, it, again, like Action Office 1, but even maybe even more so. It was so popular that other furniture companies re- realized that they should copy the design. And so they started to come up with their own three-walled versions of this. And it was when it started to be adopted you know, through the 70s and, and 80s that things started to go wrong. You have testimonies from designers who were very excited about putting in a, ca- you know, a certain kind of action office-like module. And then coming out of the experience dispirited, they see these like giant high-walled boxes everywhere, and, and they kind of didn't realize what they were doing. It basically, what happened is that managers realized that this was just a very efficient way of cramming as many people as quickly as possible into as little space as possible. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, in not having to put any fixed partitions in so you don't invest any money at all, and yeah. you could um, reconfigure it as you added bodies or disposed of bodies. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And that, that's sort of the second stage of the, the cubing of the U.S. is that, you know, in a way it was it was not a great design, but it probably wouldn't have acquired the connotations it did were it not also associated with a huge change in organizational life and corporate life, which is just the massive increase in layoffs, in mergers, in a sort of increase in the quotient of precariousness in American work life. You find testimonies of people who, after their company goes through a merger, they lose their office and end up in a cubicle. People find themselves in cubicles but then laid off from them. You know, in a way, the cubicle becomes a symbol of transience, of impermanence. Yeah, the cubicle and, and the banker's box, the cardboard box in which you put all your stuff. Yeah, it's like a Russian doll, the nesting of boxes. <laughs> in a, and, then, of course, the box, the actual building envelope is cube-like. And, and so, uh. yeah, it, it really becomes horrendous. And I think this is what prompts things like Dilbert and, by the end of the 90s, office space. The cube becomes this joke about work. It may not be what is causing the problem in your office. It very likely isn't. It's a symbol of what has gone wrong in, in work. And both of the guys you know, who collaborated on the design of the action office, which gave rise to the cubicle, came to rue the day, right? I mean, George Nelson in 1970 wrote a letter to a higher-up at Herman Miller in which he said, uh, and he's referring to Action Office 2, he calls it AO2. He says, one does not have to be an especially perceptive critic to realize that AO2 is definitely not a system which produces an environment gratifying for people in general, but it is admirable for planners looking for ways of cramming in a maximum number of bodies for employees, which he puts in quotes as against individuals, for personnel, in scare quotes as well, corporate zombies, the walking dead, the silent majority. A large market, he says with disgust. And Robert Prost, uh, later in 97, you quote him in your book as saying, um, he had hoped his idea would give knowledge workers a more flexible, fluid environment than the rat maze boxes of offices. But unfortunately, he he ended up regretting the, quote, cubicalizing of people in modern corporations, calling it monolithic insanity. Um, Wow. So how many Americans wound up in cubes? 60% 
of office workers. This is the most uh, among the more reliable estimates. Um, that's changing, of course, now. But from about the '90s to to 2000, yeah, T- tens of millions for sure, right? Tens of millions, so, yeah, of, of office workers. Yeah, I mean, maybe about 30, 30, 40 million people. And um, it really is an American phenomenon, as you said. Uh, you've traveled elsewhere and you've seen cubes elsewhere, but it started here and really conquered America first. That's right. I mean, even in England, which is actually very similar in certain ways to the office culture of the U.S., there, there are very few cubes. Uh, you don't see them on the British television show, The Office. They're mostly open plan. And in Europe, hardly at all. In a way, they, they escaped the cubing. And the reason they escaped is, is interesting. Actually, the Europeans had pioneered the use of the open plan in Germany in the 1950s. So they were kind of primed for, for the cube. But what happened is that workers in country after country actually passed laws requiring that they be in charge to some degree of planning their office. And this is because of the stronger traditions of social democracy. I was going to say those damn socialists. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's a, there's a connection between the lack of socialism and the uh, high preponderance of cubes and, and vice versa. There are just a high, larger number of offices with private offices in, in those countries. I mean, it's changing a little bit now as well. But that they escaped, they escaped the cube. Well, cubes have been with us now then for, for some decades, and they really don't seem to be going away fast. I mean, you do talk about some super high-end facilities, uh, office facilities owned by uh, very wealthy companies, which can afford to pour unheard of sums into making the office space very exciting uh, and novel, almost like an amusement park. In the case of, uh, say, Shiat, um what are they called now? They used to be called Shiat Day. They're... Oh, TBWA Chiat Day. TBWA Chiat Day, the the posh advertising firm in in Los Angeles. They have have an office that includes a basketball court and all kinds of fantastical um, elements that I can't even describe. I looked at a um, video today just to see what it looked like, and I, I don't have the words for it, but it's a fantasy world for the people there, visually. And then the, uh, is it GitHub in San Francisco? They have. That's right, yeah. And, of course, we all know about the Google offices and all their amenities. So for those companies, I mean, you may find a cube here and there, but certainly not a cubicle farm. But they're a handful of elite companies. I mean, for the majority of corporations and businesses in a world of increasing scarcity, right, is the cube here to stay, do you think? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think a lot of these companies actually do have plenty of money, and they're just not, they're not spending it on, on their workers. Yeah, I, yeah maybe I shouldn't have said scarcity. Uh, maybe I should have said frugality or parsimony or something. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's certainly, I, that would be my, my, my understanding. Stinginess, tight-fistedness. <laughs> yes. Um, who wants to spend money on offices for workers who are here today, gone tomorrow? Well, you know, the, the, actually a, a kind of running trend, and I think this, this is true both of some of the higher-end offices, but also middle range. I think it's starting to seep out of Silicon Valley and, and architectural offices, places that really advertising, places that pride themselves on creative design. The trend, I think, is towards open plan offices. The idea is to, to lower the walls, basically, or to get rid of them. And to put people, you know, even, you know, including the higher-ups in the company in, in, in the same basic space, in a way that the, the rhetoric of this is collaboration or in enhancing creativity, enhancing encounters between people. But that's even cheaper 
than having cubicles where you're not spending on anything. And you are able to cram more people into, into less space. And it saves on real estate. So the cubicle may not last. I think certainly the campaign against it, if you can call it that, has been successful to some degree. I think people really have bad associations with it. And it's one of the more efficient words in the language to describe a certain kind of hated existence. But it, in a way, it's not the problem. Um, it just is a, is a symptom of a, of a larger problem, which is these offices where conditions are imposed on workers rather than determined by them. Well, you know, I, I've seen my share of um, offices, both of the cubicle farm variety and the more progressive variety, and I definitely <laughs> prefer the latter with their espresso bars and their workout rooms and their relaxation areas and lounges and cafes and so on. So uh, it, it does seem, at least for a certain share of the workforce, things are better than they used to be, huh? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think those things are not to be gainsaid. They, they do reflect sort of more care on the part of those companies, but they don't, they don't change some fundamental thing. And some offices always had them. I mean, the campus offices of Connecticut General, the insurance company in the 50s, had bowling alleys. They had classes on campus. It's, it's, a, it's an old impulse. But those places still have hierarchies and still some of the same politics and issues that you come across in, in any kind of company. Mm. Well, um, this book for you is kind of a get-out-of-Cubicleville ticket, I would think. Where did, you, where did you write it? Did you write it in an office of any kind? I, uh, I have a home office of sorts, but I, I mainly wrote it in a library, mostly in a university library, where the level of quiet and privacy is were just unparalleled. And in fact, I just wish more offices were like libraries. That, would, that might be salubrious. Silent and... Uh, this was a nice library you were in, I guess, huh? It was this at Stanford, maybe? Uh, this was, I was mostly at the libraries of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, uh-huh. actually. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're not very pretty, but in a way that was helpful, the fact that I, I didn't have anything to look at while I was writing. Uh-oh, watch I, what you say there, Nikhil. <laughs> <laughs> I know, maybe that runs against my own. There are a lot of managers who agree with you. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, I imagine you won't be going back to a cubicle anytime soon. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope not, but I mean, I find the thing that I enjoy most about being a writer is that I can somewhat choose how to structure my day, uh, which doesn't mean I do it very successfully all the time, but I can choose where and how to get whatever it is I need to do get done. I frankly think that should be true of how most people work, but it's a long road to, to get there. Well, thanks for choosing to spend this part of your day uh, with me, because I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, me too. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. Nikhil Saval's new book is Cubed, A Secret History of the Workplace. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, and uh, please do visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com or uh, go to iTunes. And while there, if you happen to like this show, please take a moment to rate it. It takes a couple seconds, uh, and it'll help uh, the show get wider visibility, which is something we need. Thank you much, and uh, I will return next week.